I heard this week um, one of the current radio adverts for Honda cars voiced by Garrison Keeler in that wonderful sort of rich deep voice of his um, I don't think I can imitate it but it went something like this home a world that makes you think of a word that makes you think of comfort security and happiness that's what we try to reproduce in our cars <laughs> they, they, they spotted Honda the, the, the sort of the idea of home is deeply attractive to us, especially for our modern, in our modern world where we are forever on the move. Our modern culture forces us often to move house and indeed cities far too often. And uh, that um, sense of of movement and not being at home actually just intensifies that desire for, for community, for settledness, for security, for home. My mother actually uh, grew up endlessly moving. Her, her mother um, died when she was a very little girl, a little four-year-old, and um, her father was so deeply affected by that that he never really settled after that moment. She was sent off to boarding school as quite a small uh, girl and more than once she would go off at the beginning of term to her boarding school and come um, back to a completely different home. And she grew up with this sort of deep determination that she was going to settle. So... She married my father, uh, who was a farmer, and managed to live in the same house for the next 60 years until she died there. She was happy. She was at home. Actually, you could say that the, the whole of the Bible is about longing for to be at home. At the beginning, uh, in the, the Garden of Eden, is, is described as an, an idyllic, secure, happy place for Adam and Eve to live. But their sin causes them to lose that home. They, they become alienated from one another, they become alienated from God, and um, they are banished from the peace and security of that garden and forced to live dangerous, unprotected lives as restless wanderers throughout the world. And ever since Adam and Eve, ever since that moment, the Honda car advert, or whatever um, has been current in, uh, in every age, has played extremely well to human ears. We long for that home. Because that's what we were made for. And as the story of the Bible goes on, we meet, for instance, Abraham. We saw him a few weeks ago when we were looking at Hebrews, called to leave his comparatively settled home to establish a new home in the promised land. But he had to dwell there, not as the owner of that land, but he had to live in tents, still 
still, says, uh, says the Bible, longing for that ultimate home that we were made for. Or, uh, and as the story goes on in the Old Testament, the high point of Old Testament history is the rule of King David. He, he now finally rules over this promised land and it is a place of settled security. He builds uh, a palace in Jerusalem and his son actually builds a permanent temple symbolically uh, establishing a sort of settled relationship with God. Finally, it looks like, they have got there, they have re-established the home that every human being longs for. But actually, as the story unfolds, David's sin and then the sin of his son uh, Solomon and of everyone after them disrupts that kingdom. And just a few generations later, the temple is destroyed, the, 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 uh, the people are scattered again throughout the world and foreign powers rule over them. There is a return from that exile of a sort. They even managed to rebuild the temple after a fashion. But when the temple was, is, is completed its second time round, the weeping is as loud as the cheering. Because the people who know about such things know that this is no real, glorious temple like the previous one was. And so the people of God at the end of the Old Testament find themselves just about back in the Promised Land. But not really at home. And then Jesus steps onto the stage at the beginning of the New Testament. And you could say that actually Jesus comes to bring us home. Come to me, he said, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. His, his death on the cross was to, to, to pay for our sins the sins of, God, of, of, of people ever since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that again and again in every generation had separated people from God and scattered them over, over the world. Jesus came to pay for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God and promised an eternal future home with him. Jesus came to bring that Honda triumvirate, comfort, security, happiness, and much, much more. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that Christians in particular have to absorb. The Bible teaches us that actually those who follow Jesus are home and not home. And that's especially strong in this letter of 1 Peter that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. We are home, for instance, says 1 Peter 3.18, because we are reconciled to God. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, says Peter. There is nothing that separates you from God now if you're a Christian here this morning because Jesus paid for every one of your sins. Or uh, we are home, says Peter in uh, 1 Peter 2, 
verses 9 and 10, because now we belong to that secure community that we long for. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. He says, now we enjoy the benefits of being at home, says Peter. But we are not at home too. We live in a world still ruled by other forces. Our full inheritance lies in the future. Jesus anticipated it. In Matthew 5, 5, he said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He didn't mean that that inheritance would somehow come immediately. He meant that actually the inheritance would finally come on the last day when he returns and he creates the new heaven and the new earth. And in the meantime, says the New Testament, we must live as scattered exiles. Dan was introducing us all to that, wasn't he? Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. An apostle of Christ to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. This is actually language that was used of Abraham and the Israelites in general in the Old Testament, even, interestingly, when they lived in the present promised land. They lived there, but they did not own it. They were at home in one sense, and yet they were still living as people looking forward to something greater. And 1 Peter takes that Old Testament language and applies it to us. In the first place, it was written um, to, uh, as again Dan helped us uh, to see, um, to people throughout the northern part of what is now Turkey. Ignore the red lines, that's um, the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. But this map is useful because there you have Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia and Asia. Those top provinces are the ones that Peter is writing to. He's writing to people scattered over a large area. Some people think that he was writing to Jews in that area because he uses such Jewish language again and again. But uh, it is doubtful whether he uh, sees himself as writing to Jews in that area, though there were some. In 1 Peter 1.18, for instance, we'll come to next week, we see Peter describing the former empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. The New Testament never describes the Old Testament way of life, the Jewish way of life, as intrinsically an empty way of life. That's reserved for, 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 for pagans with their polytheism and so on. So it seems much more likely that Peter is consciously writing to people mainly who are not Jews, who are Gentiles, but he is ascribing uh, titles to them that in the Old Testament only belong to Israelites. 
You, effectively, he's saying to the Gentiles, are the people of God. And in many ways you live like the people of God. Home, and yet not home. So this is a great letter for us to study in our present uh, culture. Because in the Western world these days it's constantly being impressed upon us that, that this world doesn't belong to us. We may, Christians may have imagined in previous generations that, uh, that we were building the kingdom of God on the, on the earth and soon everyone would uh, bow the knee to Christianity. But there is no pretense of that these days. Christians in Britain have to live as people who are amongst much more, much more powerful forces that are not sympathetic to Christianity. Is that some horrible aberration that has come upon the West? Peter says, no. That's what Christians always had to expect. Maybe particular pertinent, particularly pertinent to us in Oxford with our hypermobility. There is a very strong sense of yearning amongst very mobile people for community and security and a place that they can call home. And then, therefore, this letter may well speak particularly powerfully to such people who feel themselves to be scattered exiles as Peter describes them. And every one of us here who has to endure the trials and difficulties of what it just means day to day living in a fallen world, struggling with difficult relationships, struggling with things not going as well as we might hope, struggling uh, with our bodies slowly perishing. Every one of us can relate then to what Peter has to say to people who don't actually live fully at home yet. Peter's going to say to us this morning, just by way of introduction, that we who have to live as scattered exiles in this world can nevertheless live lives of real joy. He's going to, let me just introduce you to three things that he says in uh, uh, the first few verses of 1 Peter that are to help people like us to live real, joyful Christian lives. First thing he points out in verses 1 and 2 is our extraordinarily privileged status. We've seen that we are scattered exiles. Yeah, we are not home yet. But let's focus on what Peter focuses on in those first couple of verses. The status, nevertheless, that we have. We are, he says, God's elect. Did you see that in verse 1? That is, we have been chosen by God. Not because of anything wonderful about us, but simply through God's overflowing love, 
grace and mercy. And it is that status that we have that he then emphasises in verse 2. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. He says, your chosen status was decided from eternity past. It was according to the foreknowledge of God. It was implemented by God through the empowering work of his Spirit, pouring out his love into our hearts so that we are changed from enmity towards God, towards loving him. It, it, it was done by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, as he says. And, and this process also gave us a new purpose to be obedient to Jesus, as he puts it, and a new security, because our forgiveness was won by the death of the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. So that when his blood shed on the cross becomes blood shed to pay for our sins, there is no other payment necessary. Just like Old Testament uh, sacrifices were sacrificed and then the blood on uh, uh, some occasions at least was sprinkled on the people who were the beneficiaries of that sacrifice. So Peter describes us vividly as being sprinkled with Jesus' blood. You have, you have, he says, though you are scattered exiles, you have the most extraordinary status. You are God's elect. I watched a bit of X Factor last night. I have, yeah, that's what I thought. I have to confess, not, not much. Um, they were choosing who was going to go to the judges' homes. Very interesting how they picked up on that, 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 that sort of um, uh, that, that theme. But that's beside the point. Um, what I noticed was the way in which now routinely in these programs the tension is built for those people around that great question, will I be chosen? And it's not rare to have people say in their little interview pieces beforehand, my life depends on this which of course is rubbish. But it is the faintest echo, the tiniest little shadow of the eternal joy for a Christian of hearing what Peter tells these people. They are God's elect. They are chosen by God. And for every one of us, your life does depend on that. It is the most extraordinary privilege. And Christians here, you're not chosen because of your X-factor talents. That's what Peter's made plain. It, it, it is not that we could sanctify ourselves, but actually God not only chose us according to his foreknowledge, but he chose by his Spirit to infuse goodness into our lives, which just wasn't there before. 
and he chose to, to, to secure our election through the death of his son Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. The thing, the only thing that qualified you to be called a person of God is that you were a sinner. Because God chooses sinners. What if I'm not chosen, you say? Well, let me say to you, if that's in, uh, in your mind, here, here's, here's the privilege that you have today. Although God has eternal foreknowledge and insists that he reigns and rules over all things for all eternity, somehow in the wisdom of the way that he manages his world, he gives you the liberty and the dignity today of turning to him and saying, please forgive me, please accept me. Please give me your spirit to change me. Please let the death of Jesus for my sins be for my sins. And he pledges that he responds to every single sincere request of that kind. Always. How does he do that when elsewhere the Bible says you were chosen before the creation of the world? I don't know. That is bound up with the mysteries of an eternal and infinite God. But I know that it's true. Every single person who says, please God, forgive me, please help me follow you, becomes God's elect. That is our status as believers here, as Christians. We're not home. We live in a world where we do not rule, where forces more powerful than us rule very often. But we are chosen. And that, of course, leads very naturally on to our joy which Peter emphasises in verses 3 through to, uh, uh, to 9 Praise be, he says to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ Look at some of the reasons that he gives for that, that, uh, that outburst of praise that he has here We have, he says a living hope He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He gave us new birth, that is he brought our hearts from death to life. He did it because of his mercy. He, he, that, that, that living hope, he says, is resurrection hope. Jesus rose from the dead and was given new bodily life after he died and so he became the promise, the first fruits, the, the taste for us of what our future holds. Resurrection life. This, he says, is our inheritance, verse 4, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It is absolutely secure, he says, it will not perish, spoil or fade. 
all our precious things are destroyed one way or another. Moths have eaten some of my favourite old clothes these last two summers. I wept, Judy rejoiced, but that's another matter. Uh, our wedding presents, our wedding china is slowly getting broken um, as the do- days go by. In fact, the very first uh, the, um, breakage of wedding china for us was on the day we got back from our honeymoon. It was uh, a little bit disappointing. Our bo- bodies slowly perish. I have more aches, it seems, as every year year goes by. And even money perishes, says says the Bible. And partly, sometimes through devaluation, sometimes literally. We were out um, in the countryside yesterday. There was a great throng of treasure hunters with their metal detectors and someone showed us a Henry V silver penny that he'd found. It was amazing, but it was almost completely destroyed. It had lasted for 500 years, but who knows how much longer it would last. Well, 500 years is nothing from the Bible's point of view. Money, even money, perishes. But not this inheritance that we are promised, not this resurrection inheritance. It will not perish, spoil or fade because it is kept for us in the presence of God, in heaven. It is kept for us, actually, and we are kept for it, verse 5. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. God exerts his power to keep us trusting him, to keep us having faith until the end. We may have many vicissitudes and trials. We may have periods, long periods of doubt and despondency or apathy or being tempted away. But those in whom God has placed that seed of life which causes us to love God and trust God, that will not be extinguished. We are shielded by God's power, says the Bible. We may do ourselves enormous damage and not enjoy the full blessings that we have now. And many Christians do that as they they fritter away their lives, not cultivating their faith. But the Bible does say, those in whom God has begun a work, he does carry it on to completion. And so, says Peter, as we reflect on this, we will find real joy flowing up. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Indeed, says Peter, those very sufferings somehow are used in in the mysterious alchemy of God to produce something beautiful in us. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter doesn't mean that we will never grieve, never be confused, never have any doubts. The Bible is full of a frank recognition 
of the harsh reality of living in this world of sin and death. We did a series on Job to make exactly that point uh, uh, a few months ago. Peter is not minimising the reality of the grief and suffering that so many Christians so often have to endure one way or another as we live far from home. Peter is saying that nevertheless, nevertheless, God has this amazing way of using those very sufferings to wean us off false uh, and temporary hopes our hopes of relationships, our hopes of wealth or status in this this world and all those other false hopes that we invest all of our energy and all of our anticipation in, they always disappoint. But out of that can come a real, true, imperishable, unspoilable, unfading hope in our eternal inheritance, our true home. Now some of us will have to pay perhaps a considerable price as we follow Christ. Perhaps there's a relationship that we know must end. Perhaps there's a difficult marriage that we know we must persevere in. Perhaps there's a job that we will not take or a job that we will not be given because of our faith. Perhaps there's a home that we will not buy. Perhaps there are strains in our family relationships. Perhaps we will have to just live with the stigma of being a God-botherer. There are costs, says Peter, to living as scattered exiles. But in the hand of God, those costs refine our faith. A faith which, as as he said, is of greater worth than gold. So that we can be filled. Paradoxically, sometimes at the same time as experiencing grief, with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That is the joy of being a Christian. Yes, there are griefs, but actually authentic Christian experience, an authentic Christian truth um, uh, uh, digested in our hearts, gives Christians real joy. I remember years ago we had a, a, a young man, um, very able young man, who, who um, had not been a, a, a Christian. He was diagnosed with a terminal cancer in his early 30s and he started coming to this church and he, he got converted. Um, his wife was utterly confused. She said, this Christianity thing has torn us apart. 
because I see him now with with something with an with, with an experience and uh, getting getting uh, resources and strength from from somewhere that he never had it before. And he said, it is my Christian faith. And he was extraordinary. He lived not just a few months, but his testimony to his vast number of Christian friends was quite extraordinary. Because God had given him something better than life. He'd given him eternal Christian faith and solid hope. That is our joy. And then says Peter, just to um, hammer it home even more, he says, and think about our privilege for a minute. We scattered exiles. As people who live after Christ, we are more privileged, says Peter, than all the saints of the Old Testament. Verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. When someone tells you, he's saying to us, when someone tells you about Christ's death and resurrection, you are hearing something that Abraham, Moses, Isaiah and every other famous name in the whole of the Old Testament would have given their right arm to hear. They got glimpses, they got hints, they got little little tokens of what was going to come. But they themselves knew it was sadly inadequate. And then Jesus came along. And Jesus brought a clarity and a conclusion and, 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 and a visibility to those little hints as he lived and died and rose again. We have a privilege that not even the great names of the Old Testament had. More than that, he says, actually, we've got a privilege greater than the angels. Do you notice that at the end? Even angels long, notice the present tense, by the way, even angels long to look into these things. In other words, um, today, the angels that the Bible describes often that look on in this world, even the angels somehow can't grasp the glory of the gospel that is promised to us. There is something about being human uniquely that gives us an ability to look into these things, to see these things. What an extraordinary privilege, a, a temporal privilege. We live, we live after, after the time of Christ and, and, and how shall we describe it? A, 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 a spatial privilege or something? Um, that, that we live as human beings and so have a greater privilege. 
of seeing these things than even the angels. Oh yes, believers, says Peter. Take it really, really seriously. You are scattered exiles. When you go out to work tomorrow, you will go into a place where the majority of people don't bow the knee to Jesus, most of you, and you will have to live as someone who is not in the driving seat. Many of us, even when we go home now, we will be amongst people who are like that. The dominant forces of our world today in politics are not the forces of Christ. In our personal experience as well, we have to live with the fact that relationships don't work very often because sin intrudes. But our bodies fail very often because the fallenness of this world is dragging us, all of us, every single one, towards the grave. You're not at home yet, says Peter. But you don't need to be despondent. You don't need to be despairing. You don't need to be people with your heads bowed. You don't need to to be people who are somehow ashamed. You can hold your heads up high and you can discover, in fact, a joy that transcends those difficulties of life because you have a unique status. You are God's elect. You have an unstoppable, inexpressible joy because God has prepared a home for you and you have the greatest privilege that any human being has ever had or will ever have, you live as a human being who has heard of Jesus Christ dying for your sins and rising again to resurrection life. Maybe there are people here for that that is not you yet. If you, if you have understood and, and had a hint then of this extraordinary privilege that Christians are given, let me encourage you, come along to Christianity Explored, talk to a Christian friend, simply pray about it and read your Bible and ask God to take those truths that you've heard and impress them on your heart. Because like those X-Factor candidates, it really, really is the most important thing in your life. Unlike them, isn't it? It can be yours. If you are a believer here today, as a pastor, I see the range of difficulties that you go through and I know that they are big for many people and for some of them they are long term for all of your life 
And some of us here are even facing the decline of our bodies and our deaths. Those things are real and sober and not to be taken lightly. But you have the opportunity of living with an inextinguishable joy in your heart.